Good morning. If you have a Bible, will you turn to Jeremiah chapter 17? Jeremiah chapter 17. We did sing a lot of songs this morning that made me think of, of heaven. Um, I always think of heaven when we sing sweet rivers, a few more days or years at most. Um, and this morning as we're looking at God's word, the theme of my sermon is not unrelated to what we sang about, but you have to see it in terms of how God will get us to heaven. Because it's the assumption of most Americans that they're just going there because they're Americans. And what we look to God for in his word is to tell us the truth about our condition and the truth about who he is and the truth about how he's solved the problem. And so we're going to be looking at that this morning. So if you'll turn with me and look at Jeremiah chapter 17, I want to read verse 9. A familiar verse to many of us. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I often have conversations with people, and I have them say to me something like this. uh, David, people don't need to be told that they are sinners. They already know that they are. What they need is to be told the gospel. People don't need to be told that they're sinners. They don't need to be told the law. What they need to be told is the gospel, the good news. Now, in context, this statement usually comes after I've told an evangelical that we need to declare God's law to people so that they will know the depth of their sin. That's usually when I hear a statement like that. And so what is it about our sin that we don't want to see? What is it that uh, our society kind of hides from ourselves, we hide from ourselves in our sin. I was uh, not long ago uh, came upon an article. Now I don't generally uh, read the Village Voice, so just in case you're wondering, I just happened to hear about this article reading somewhere else, and was very intrigued by the title of it. So I went and read it. The article is called "Why I Am No Longer a Brain Dead Liberal." Why I am no longer a brain-dead liberal. Now, this sermon isn't about politics, but it was an interesting title, and it was in the Village Voice. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I'm going to read that article. By a guy named David Andrew Mamet. David Mamet. And he's a playwright, uh, producer, uh, film guy, um, You probably would never want to read anything he writes but this article. Okay? And so what he's doing in this article is he's talking about why he's left his uh, liberal worldview. And he specifically says at the beginning, um, I found myself disenchanted with my worldview. And the worldview was this, that everything is always wrong. Everything is always wrong. That was his 
liberal worldview by his own confession. And he goes on and he talks as an aside and he says, and I wondered, how could I have spent decades thinking that I thought everything was always wrong at the same time that I thought that people were basically good at heart? Which was it? I began to question what I actually thought, and I found that I do not think that people are basically good at heart. Indeed, that view of human nature has both prompted and informed my writing for the last 40 years. I think that people, in circumstances of stress, can behave rather like swine, and that this, indeed, is not only a fit subject, but the only subject of drama. And then he goes on and says, we, people, are a confection of normal, parentheses, normal, greedy, lustful, duplicitous, corrupt, in short, human individuals. Unquote. So what did Mr. Mamet not want to see all of those years that he was looking at everything being wrong, but thinking that everyone is basically good? What was he not wanting to see? He did not want to see the true condition of man. And why is that? Well, how many of you are baby boomers here this morning? Come on. Are you not raising your hand, Mike, just because your coffee is in it? Okay. Something about the baby boomers is that they somehow grew up believing that everything was wrong and that they had to fix it. And the reality is, everything wasn't wrong. We baby boomers were just wicked. And we thought we could judge everything and everybody and fix it. So Mr. Mamet is just a baby boomer. He grew up thinking everything was wrong and that he'd fix it. He was a 60s, probably a 60s uh, uh, hippie kind of a person at some point in his life, and he was going to fix everything, change everything. So that's what we baby boomers try to do. In his case, as with all boomers, I don't think he wanted to acknowledge the condition of men's hearts because seeing the condition of man would cause him to have a small look into what? His own condition, his own heart. Why do we not want to see our true condition? What is our true condition? What is, what is it that the Bible says about men? Well, there's a place in Romans chapter 3 where you have a compilation of all kinds of statements about man that come from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms and from the book of Isaiah. And it says this in Romans 3, starting at verse 9, What then are we better than they? That is, are the Jews better than the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Statements about our condition, our condition. 
And usually when we talk about this theologically, we call it the doctrine of total depravity. Total depravity. A doctrine that says that as a consequence of the fall of man, every person born into the world is morally corrupt, enslaved to sin, and is, apart from the grace of God, utterly unable to choose to follow God or choose to turn to Christ in faith for salvation. The doctrine of total depravity. This we also call original sin. Original sin. Sin that we receive from Adam. In us by descent. All through history there has been a dislike of this doctrine. I mean, does it make you feel really comfortable? All through history there's been a dislike of this doctrine. Men have tended to do everything they could to get themselves out from under it. And typically this has come down in three errors. One is that they try to deny it altogether. This is something that a man very early in church history uh, named Pelagius, he was an ascetic monk in the 4th century, and he did not believe in original sin. He believed in man's moral ability not to sin. And he at the time was opposed by Augustine, and finally, was he excommunicated? Uh, I think he was. Yeah, David's saying yes. So I believe he was excommunicated by the church. It was also the error of a man nearer our time during the revival of called the Second Great Awakening, a man named Charles Finney, who was also known as the father of modern revivalism. Finney was also a Pelagian. Finney also denied original sin. A quote from Finney would be, and this is a quote, The fact is, sin never can consist in having a nature, nor in what nature is, but only and alone in the bad use which we make of our nature. This is all. So he's saying there is no sin nature. There is no original sin. That was his position. So men try to deny it. They also try to redefine it. A recent person who's tried to redefine original sin would be Robert Schuller. Are you familiar with Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral? He's getting kind of old now. He's a little long in the tooth, but he's still out there, right? And he's redefined original sin. And this is what he says from his book, Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. Quote, The core of original sin, then, is L-O-T. Lack of trust. Or it could be considered an innate inability to adequately value ourselves. Label it a negative self-image. But do not say that the central core of the human soul is wickedness. Unquote. He goes on to say, quote, Positive Christianity does not hold to human depravity, but to human inability. Now, I believe in inability, but it's not in the way that Schuller is defining it here. Schuller's actually replacing the doctrine of depravity with what he calls inability. Depravity leads all of us to the point of inability, and we'll talk about that later, but that's not what Schuller is saying. He says, uh, positive Christianity does not hold to human depravity, but to human inability. I am humanly unable to correct my negative self-image until I encounter a life-changing experience with 
non-judgmental love bestowed upon me by a person whom I admire so much that to be unconditionally accepted by him is to be born again. What a bunch of bunk that is. But he's redefining original sin. He's redefining it in a way that makes him feel good, makes it positive for us. So um, Robert Schuller's getting older, um, like Billy Graham is older. Um, Billy Graham has an heir apparent. Do you know who his heir apparent is? Who's the heir to Billy Graham's throne? Somebody say it louder. Ah, you're wrong. It's Rick Warren. Rick Warren is the heir to the Billy Graham empire. And Robert Schuller has an heir to his empire. Do you know who that is? He also has a son, just like Billy Graham. And his son preaches at his church. But it's not his son. Who's Robert Schuller's heir? Joel Osteen. That's exactly right. So this stuff is perpetuating. It goes on. Redefining original sin. Making it positive. Making it palatable. The third thing that we do is we revile against the implications of original sin. See, when you start talking about depravity, then you start realizing that there are implications. One of them, as I talked about a minute ago, was inability. The inability that comes from depravity. Are having no ability to save ourselves. And so there are men in history who have tried to revile against these implications. They've said that they have relieved an original sin, but they would not accept any of the logical implications of it. And one of those would have been John Wesley. Another implication of original sin is that you ha- if you have no ability, then you're completely dependent upon God to do the work for you. Completely. And we understand this to be seen in the doctrine of sovereignty in election, sovereignty in salvation. And Wesley couldn't stand that, so he, he was uh, opposed. Another way to say it is predestination. Wesley was opposed, that, opposed to that, so he wrote and preached against predestination, and he wrote and preached uh, for um, uh, sanctification, that in our lives we could actually be free from uh, be free from original sin, be free from our depraved nature, is what he said. And so what he wanted to do was remove the implications of the doctrine and remove those things because they were too uncomfortable for him, but he kept to the doctrine. So a lot of times people look at Wesley and they label him as a semi-Pelagian. He wasn't a true Pelagian, but he was like a semi-Pelagian where Finney was a true Pelagian and denied the doctrine completely. Wesley said in his sermon entitled Free Grace, quote, the doctrine of predestination is not a doctrine of God. And, quote, predestination is a doctrine full of blasphemy, unquote. All attempts to remove or reduce the doctrine of depravity have the same objective. What's the objective that we have in removing it or replacing it. What do we want to do? What is it that we're after with this doctrine? 
uh, our, our dislike for this doctrine. Well, what we want to do is remove it or change it because what we want to do is in our own power, we want to reconcile ourselves to God. There's a gap between us and God. And we want to close the gap. And so we do that by in two ways. We do that either by minimizing God's character, bringing him down, or by minimizing our own sin, that is, bringing ourselves up. We'll minimize God's character and bring him down, or minimize our own sin and bring ourselves up. And so this is all that Finney was doing by minimizing our own sin, saying there's no original sin, that we can do it, we have the power to do it. He's bringing himself up. And by saying the things that we say about God, sometimes we bring God down to our level, and I'm going to get to that in a second. So we do this in one of two ways, minimizing God's character or minimizing our own sin. How do we bring God down? How do we bring God down to our level? Well, we do that by minimizing his law or calling it bad. Many denominations reduce the law of God to just a few rules, many pastors, just a few rules that you have to follow. And if you follow those few rules, you're capable of doing it. You don't actually pull a gun on somebody. If you don't actually do that, then you've kept that You've kept that rule. This is a quote from Finney, and it's a little hard to understand in relation to bringing down God, but I want you to understand it in terms of how he would have understood sin, the disobedience and breaking of God's law. And ask the question, does a Christian cease to be a Christian whenever he commits a sin? Does a Christian cease to be a Christian whenever he commits a sin? Finney says, quote, whenever he sins, he must for the time being cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. He must incur the penalty of the law of God. If it be said that the precept is still binding upon him, but that with respect to the Christian, the penalty is forever set aside or abrogated, I reply that to abrogate the penalty is to repeal the precept, for a precept without a penalty is no law. It is only counsel or advice. The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys and must be condemned when he disobeys, or antinomianism is true. In these respects, then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are upon precisely the same ground. So what is he saying? He's saying that every time somebody sins, they're not a Christian anymore. Now, if any denied the substitutionary atonement. He denied the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And so he really believed that he could be saved by keeping God's law. He didn't believe in original sin. And so what he had to say was something like this. Every time somebody sins, they don't become they become a sinner. They're not a Christian anymore. They have to become a Christian again. Now, can you imagine the difficulty he had to deal with? What did he have to do? He had to reduce God's law to some extent so that it would be uh, able, it would be possible for him not to be convicted by his own sin. And it would be possible for the people around him not to be convicted by the law. He had to make it possible for them to possibly keep it. To where they actually thought they were keeping it somehow. Rather than being on their knees 24 hours a day. We even sin when we're sleeping. 
We're sinners. We depreciate God's law and we bring God down. We depreciate Christ to bring God down. A large minority of Americans believes that when Jesus Christ was on earth, he committed sins. Less than half, but 42% of Americans believe that's true. Why would we believe that Jesus sinned? Jesus was God incarnate. He's not as palatable as the holy God who does not sin incarnate upon the earth, is he? And so we have to believe that he sins. Another quote from Robert Schuller, quote, Christ is the ideal one. For he was self-esteem incarnate. He was self-esteem incarnate. Is that bringing God down? Do you see how it's bringing God down? He's self-esteem incarnate. Bringing God down. We want a self-esteem savior. Another thing that we do is we try to bring ourselves up by comparing ourselves to one another rather than to God. In the first service, I was talking about this, and I said, you know, I'm better than Wayne. Don't raise your hands. How many of you think you're better than Wayne? Wayne Huck. Joyce did. In the first service, it was just Jiho and I. But how many of you think that you're better than and, and, and more worthy of God's approval than Barack Obama. Do you elevate yourself by comparing yourself to others? Are you better than Barack Obama? You may be in Christ and Barack Obama may not be in Christ. Does that mean that you have more to merit you before God than Barack Obama does? We like to bring ourselves up by comparing ourselves to others. We like to bring ourselves up by always and only looking at the particular ways that we seem to keep God's law, like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, you know, what must I do? And Jesus lists off the commandments and he says, oh, I've done that. I've done that. And so what does Jesus say? One thing you lack. Sell everything you had, have. And Jesus put his finger on the rich young man's idolatry. And he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. And suddenly, all of his sin, all of his depravity was opened up to him. And what seemed like a sure deal was now completely busted. Because he wasn't capable of doing what Jesus asked him to do. We bring ourselves up by creating substitute laws that we're confident that we can keep. Laws that aren't even in the scripture, maybe. Little rules and laws. I remember making a pact with my best friend in grade school. In our church growing up, uh, people didn't wear jewelry. They didn't go to movies. 
They didn't smoke cigarettes. They didn't use alcohol. I remember making a pact with my friend Kevin that uh, we would never smoke cigarettes. Never smoke cigarettes. That was our pact. It was like the most holy thing we could possibly think of we could do, is never smoke cigarettes. And so we didn't go to movies. I remember a man whose uh, children at the time were junior high school level, I think. He wouldn't go to a movie if his life depended on it in a movie theater. But he had two VCRs and he had shelves full of videos. And he'd watch anything at home. But he wouldn't go to a movie. He kept that law so good. And he was raising himself up. We raise ourselves up by ignoring the law so that its threats and thunderings are never heard by us. We just don't read the things we don't want to hear. We raise ourselves up by believing that we can keep God's laws and earn salvation. Half of all adults in America, 50%, argue that anyone who is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life will earn a place in heaven. Four out of ten Protestants believe this. We raise ourselves up by demanding that we have free will, that somehow, underneath everything, even though we're depraved, even though we're really, really bad, we are capable, finally, we have, finally, it's our, we get to finally flip the switch. That's what we get to do. We're going to have some part in this, and we're going to be the ones that are going to flip the switch. We're going to be able to choose. It's going to be us, finally, at the bottom of everything. Yes, everything after that God takes care of, but we flip the switch by our power. And so 74% of American adults believe that when people are born, they're born with neither good nor evil, that they make a choice as they mature. They're the ones that choose. They flip the switch. And 52% of evangelicals believe that. So what are we trying to do? Well, we're trying to close the gap. God, every time we read the Bible, we see God as up here. We see ourselves as down here. So we got to do something. We work at it. Close the gap. We're going to do it. We'll figure out a way. We'll get that gap to be closed. Rather than what we should be doing, and that is allowing God to use his words and his methods to work on us. To show us what we truly are. To show us how great the gap actually is. Rather than depreciating God, we should actually be looking at God's character. Just think about these words from John 3. John says, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. God is true. In 1 John, he says, This is the message we heard from him. God is light. He is light. And there is no darkness at all in him. None at all. In James 1, do not be deceived. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shifting shadow. Immutable. How good is God? How excellent is God? How high up does it go? How high up does it go? His goodness, His holiness, His faithfulness, 
his justice. Go ahead. Try it. Try to imagine. Put your mind to it. Go ahead. How high does it go? Try to comprehend him in whom there is no darkness, no shadow, no variation. Try to understand him of whom it is written, God is love. Or he who will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Put your mind to it. You might get somewhere only because you've read his word. You might get some things. You might come to some understanding, but pretty soon everything's going to just freeze up and seize up like a PC. Right? And you're just going to stop and you're going to say, everything I try from this point on, I only project myself on. Because you realize that you have to project yourself to even understand it. And then you're, you're making an idol of him. He's not even God. Right? You can't imagine how good and how amazing he is. And how high up it goes. Rather than depreciating our own sin, what is our character? Who are we really? Well, yes, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yes, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But how deep does it go? How bad is it? Ephesians 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them you too all formerly lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Well, that's a response to Finney, isn't it? Finney says that there is nothing in our nature. There's nothing in our nature, nothing wrong with our nature. No original sin here. You were by nature children of wrath. You are all dead. You were all dead in trespasses and sins. That's a Greek word and it means dead. Right? And nature is a Greek word and it means nature. Kind of, the, kind of like your roots. How bad are we? What shape are we in? Our wickedness, jealousy, pride, self-love, and self-worship go far beyond our comprehension. Go ahead. Go ahead. Look inside yourself. Look inside yourself. Imagine that you're a surgeon and that you're digging right into your innermost parts, right into your heart, right into your motivations. Go ahead. See if you can find where the, where the bad stuff stops. See if you can find it. Every single thing you've done that you think is so good, you can even look at those good things. You can look at those really nice things. And in those nice things, you can, look and you can kind of peel back behind the door and you can see motivations of yourself looking good. You can see pride. Right? Go ahead. When did we acquire this condition? It wasn't the, it wasn't the first time we stole the cookie out of the cookie jar. 
It's in our nature. It's in our nature. Depravity. How far down are we? How high up is God? You see the chasm. It just keeps getting wider. It gets wider and wider. And we, res- and we, we see in us despair. To where Paul says in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am. Wretched. Who will rescue me from the body of this death? Who will rescue me? In Romans 8, he talks about his hostile mind. I'm going to go back to his answer, who will rescue me, don't worry. Romans 8, he talks about his hostile mind. He says, my, my mind is, the mindset on the flesh is hostile. It's hostile toward God. And that word in the King James Version is enmity. The mind is enmity toward God. And to understand it, I want to read something to you from Charles Spurgeon, writing about that passage. The mind of the flesh is enmity. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, Observe how strongly... The the apostle expresses it. The carnal mind, he said, is enmity against God. He uses a noun and not an adjective. He does not say it is opposed to God merely, but it is positive enmity. It is not black, but blackness. It is not at enmity, but enmity itself. It is not corrupt, but corruption. It is not rebellious. It is rebellion. It is not wicked. It is wickedness itself. The heart, though it be deceitful, is positively deceit. It is evil in the concrete. Sin in the essence. It is the distillation, the quintessence of all things that are vile. It is not envious against God. It is envy. It is not at enmity. It is actual enmity. And this is who we are. This is what Paul says. Who will rescue me? Who will rescue me? Romans 8. The heart is enmity. The mind is enmity against God. And then we see that we have no ability. Who will do this? I have no ability. I can't. Close the gap. There's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. Help me. And then in chapter 9, do you know what he starts talking about? He starts talking about God's sovereign election in chapter 9. God's sovereign election. He starts talking about two men. Do you know who they are? Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau. Now, let me ask you something. It says that before they were born, while they were still in the womb, so that God's uh, purpose and election, is that what it says? Would be established. It is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, had either of these boys at this time stolen anything from the cookie jar? They were still in the womb, weren't they? So how is it that God could 
give to one of them judgment and give the other one mercy. They hadn't done anything, right? How is it that one of them could be given, before they were even born, it was established that one of them would be given judgment and the other one would be given mercy? How was that? What had they done? You know what they'd been, what they'd done? They'd been conceived as descendants of Adam. They had in their hearts his corruption, even in their mother's womb. And it was just of God to say, Esau, I will judge and hate. And it was merciful of God to say, Jacob, I will give mercy to and I will love. He is sovereign. And so when Paul says in chapter 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's the mercy of God that allows Paul to say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There's a huge chasm, Paul says, between me and God, between my heart and God. It's huge. I can't overcome it. But God has overcome it. That's the good news. That's what you have to tell your friends before you tell them the good news. You have to make sure that they see the chasm. That's why the law is so important to us. It allows us, it's God's mercy to us to see how utterly sinful we are and how utterly desperate we need to be to turn to Him and ask and beg for Christ. The good news is what? The good news is there's a big gap and we can't close it, but God has provided a way for it to be closed. God has provided a way for it to be closed. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for a long time, meditating on all of these things is something you should do regularly. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, then you need to know that while you are separated from God because of your sin, God has made provision to save your soul. And that provision has been made through Jesus Christ. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Ephesians 2, as I read earlier, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But you read on to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've been raised from Christ. Well, this is an allusion to the resurrection. But it also is talking about us being taken up with Christ into heaven. We don't deserve to be there. But God in his mercy has allowed us to be there and made provision for us to be there through Jesus Christ. And so when we turn to him in faith, we are brought up to We are brought up to God, reconciled to God, reinstated, and brought into a place 
of communion with him. When I think about a person who is really, really good from the Bible, I think of Job. You remember Job? God even testifies of Job when he's talking to Satan. He says, look at Job. Look at how good he is. Look at how good he is. Look at my servant. And in the course of the temptation that God allows Satan to bring on Job, in the course of the affliction that God allows to be brought to Job, Job suffers many trials. And he wonders at why it's happened to him. And he wonders at the difficulty. And he doesn't lose his faith in God, but he does say things, doesn't he? He says things. And at, and at the very best, you could say of Job, well, maybe he wasn't trying to... Uh, um, Maybe he wasn't trying to elevate himself so that God would see his righteousness. But at the very best, at least you could say, or the very, maybe the very worst, at least you could say, well, he was, he was trying to, you know, get a, get a word in. This shouldn't happen. I don't deserve this. You understand? Job was a sinner. He was like you and I. Even in that context, though, what happens when, when God speaks to Job? Do you remember what happens? God says, gird up your loins, Job. I'm going to talk to you now. I'm going to talk to you now. You remember what Job's response is? Job, who might have been in a little minute way, might have been trying to raise himself up a little bit and suggest some things about himself, just a little bit. As soon as God speaks to him, do you know what Job does? What does he say? Job answered the Lord, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And so, if you can imagine that, applying that to ourselves in terms of our attempts to raise ourselves up, to bring ourselves God, let's do the equivalent of laying our hand on our mouth with those things. And let's say, no, I'm not going to try to raise myself up this way anymore. And I'm not going to try to bring God down so he'll be more palatable to me anymore. And I'm not going to listen to those who are tempting me to do so. But I am going to trust in the Lord by faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm going to depend on Christ. And receive from God his provision to reconcile me to himself. 